Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. Here we are rescuing the characters and stories of British military history from the dustbin of history one episode at a time. If that sounds like your cup of tea then subscribe and write a review as that really helps others to find the show. The Sikhs are some of the toughest people to have ever walked the earth. Their home in the Punjab lays across the border between what's now India and Pakistan, as important historically as it is now. I've covered the first Anglo-Sikh war before on the podcast when I was joined by the brilliant Amapol Sidhu Singh. You can go back to episode 32 and 34 to hear more on that subject. Today's show though is slightly different and complements those episodes perfectly. I'm joined by historian Gurinder Singh Mann, a fellow Leicester lad actually, and an expert on the history of the region. Not Leicester, Punjab. Although he probably is an expert on Leicester too, I didn't actually ask him. He has a new book out with Helion called The Rise of the Sikh Soldier. The Sikh warrior through the ages, circa 1700 to 1900. If you're interested in getting your hands on a copy, then just visit helion.co.uk. If you check the show notes, I should have a discount code for you, 20% off. Just check the notes below the episode. I started off by asking Gurinder how intertwined the Sikh faith and their warrior culture are. It's a really, really important uh, question that you're asking there, because originally the Sikh faith um, under Guru Nanak, uh, early you know, 1500 period, for instance, was really... Um, the, the, the original gurus were all about kind of, um, you know, tolerance, you know, believing in the idea that, you know, universal traits, for instance. But unfortunately, what happened was um, during the Mughal regime, the Sikh faith was getting persecuted. It was like, you know, with anything that's new in society, um, the Sikhs were being persecuted. And when we get to the terms of the, the fifth guru, his name is Guru Arjan, he is actually kind of, you know, um, boiled to death. That's what the Mughal regime was actually doing to the Sikhs. So therefore, when you get to the sixth guru, whose name is Guru Hargobind, he's the first uh, individual who actually starts saying, well, we need to balance the saintly side of what the religion already professed with this military ethos as well. So therefore he dons two swords together on his investiture to actually say, well, you know, the religion needs to change. We are very, very kind of peaceful a group of individuals. We believe in the tolerance of everybody, but we need to keep ourselves kind of, you know, protected. So it's almost like saying, you know, we're very spiritual, but we have this kind of military ethos which will protect the followers. So it's almost around about the 1600 period where we start seeing this kind of change. But it's not change in the sense that it goes against the faith, because you might say, well, one minute you're passive, next minute you're military. It was always the case that Guru Nanak, who founded the faith, was always against oppression, you know, injustice, and making sure that there's human rights as well. And that's what it fundamentally comes down to when it comes to the Sikh faith. So as, as the faith developed and as, as this, uh, this combative, this military aspect uh, became part of the faith, what were the key elements that would define Sikh soldiers over the coming centuries? What were the sort of the, the tactics? What were the characteristics of a, of a good Sikh warrior? Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah. Before we do that, though, we just need to have that little progression from the sixth guru. So the sixth guru, Guru Hogobind, he actually laid down the foundations. He had a few skirmishes and battles with the Mughals. But then when we get to the ninth guru, he's actually executed by the Mughal regime um, in Delhi. So he's executed. And his son, whose name is Gobind Rai, later to be known as Guru Gobind Singh, is the 10th guru and he creates this order called the Khalsa. So sometimes you people say, okay, you, you, you're Sikhs, but you're also Khalsa. So when we get to like the, you know, the Anglo-Sikh uh, Anglo wars period, etc., people always see the army of the Khalsa, but the Khalsa was essentially the, um, the army of the pure. And it was this confederation, which the guru had created by, it was almost saying, you are Sikhs, you are this individual, you are that individual, but to become this military order, you have to have this initiation of the double-edged sword. Now, this is really, really powerful. So you've got water, prayers are kind of recited, and sugars actually kind of put in, and then with us with the double-edged sword, with the kundas, we call it, the, the cauldron is stirred, and then the initiates are given this water. It almost sounds very, very kind of, you know, going back to some of the kind of the ages of old here in Britain as well about chivalry and things like that. So the Sikhs became this military order called the Khalsa. And early kind of military uh, ethos was, yeah, it was um, it was all based around, um, um, you know, uh, cavalry, essentially. So you had the cavalry riding of horses. And, you know, you had the bow and arrows, for instance, at that time, you had, had this, had the, had the kundas and various kind of um, arms and armour as well. But um, it was it was at its infancy compared with, say, the Mughals who had like artillery, for instance, and, you know, other groups as well who had already had a kind of a big foundation of military kind of um, weapons and weaponry. But the Sikhs were in their infancy from the 17 early 1700 period but then it does take another fold later on so maybe we should just backtrack a tiny bit just to explain to anyone who doesn't know so the Sikh uh, religion grew up in the area of Punjab essentially right and it was it was in an area controlled by the Mughals who were Muslims based in Delhi is that right just so we don't we don't take that for granted people may not know that Absolutely, and it's a good point as well that we do go, uh, you know, backtrack a little bit. He says, so quite rightly, so the Punjab was actually an area which was kind of under Mughal jurisdiction, which was, you know, based in Delhi. And so the Sikh community, as they'd come up, like I mentioned, were persecuted by the Mughals because it was just a new order as such. But when Guru Gobind Singh starts creating uh, this Khalsa, the Mughal authorities are obviously going to get, uh, you know, be wondering, well, what is this community all about and try and take action against them. Unfortunately, some of the Hindu hill rajas were also in collusion with the, with the Mughal authorities and therefore the Sikhs had to fight both in its early period, so to speak. But it was these long kind of, um, kind of like, you know, building into the trenches and, you know, building up this early community, which led to the Sikhs where they would later go in the 18th century, essentially. I mean, maybe we can cover this fairly rapidly, but how did the Sikhs go from essentially an, an oppressed people, I guess, under the Mughals, to then developing their own empire? Yes, and this really cuts into the heart of 
the decline almost of the Mughal Empire, the rise of the Afghans as well. So it's really, really important to actually understand that the Afghans started um, coveting a lot of territory and actually getting a lot of uh, you know, booty and bounty from India. So originally an in individual called Nadir Shah, uh, originally from Iran, kind of had a number of campaigns where he just ransacked Delhi. So the power of the Mughals was kind of actually kind of going down. And, and then the second, uh, what we would call the Afghan invasions or uh, the invader was by a person called um, Abdali from the Durrani um, kind of dynasty. So the Sikhs were actually fighting a number of powers, firstly kind of the decline of the Mughals, but also the actual kind of the hordes of Afghan invaders as well. So when we get to the early 1700s, we have an individual called Jassa Singh Al uh, Alawalia, who is the commander in chief of the Sikh forces. So what he does, he kind of creates almost like 11 confederate 11 um armies essentially or armies should i say because the confederacies so you've got a number of warriors here you've got a number of warriors here so they're all combined into this kind of unit which he terms the buddhadal and the tarnadal buddhadal means the older warriors from the time of guru Gobind singh and tarnadal stands for the younger warriors so he kind of creates a confederacy which is it, in retrospect, considered what we call the Sikh missiles, basically. So it's a confederacy of the Sikhs. He's the commander in chief. So what he's trying to do, he's trying to kind of um, take territory towards Delhi, but he's also fighting the Afghans. Because the Sikhs are at their infancy and their numbers are very, very little, the tactics that the Sikhs use are what we call hit and run, guerrilla warfare style, picking at the enemy. So the Afghans, once they've like invaded India, they're, they're going back to, you know, Afghanistan. So what they do is they hit their baggage trains, they hit their like um, the end of their trains in terms of actually picking off the booty, so to speak. So this was the tactics that the early Sikhs employed to actually kind of um, have their footing, have their kind of stranglehold. And then the bigger they got and the raids got better, that's when they became better in the open field so in terms of direct warfare against armies but it was this kind of initial area where they kind of were you know struggling a little bit to actually get the upper hand but it did take a little bit of time but by the say the mid uh, 18th century they were definitely on the ascendancy which is interesting because it ties in with the ascendancy of the east india company as well Brilliant. And before we get into that clash between, you know, the Sikh power and the East India Company, I understand in your latest book, you talk about some of the great warriors of this era. Can you give us a potted history maybe of, you know, one or two of, of, of the key characters? Yeah. So I mentioned Justice in Aliwalia um, a few minutes ago. And the key idea about Justice in Aliwalia was that he actually wanted this idea that um, you've got you know, you've got the Mughals, you've got the Afghans. So he's actually sending his armies or the individuals from his army to different areas to kind of thwart that attack. The greatest achievement of Justice Singh Alawalia was that his armies were able to penetrate the heart of Delhi. In 1783, the Sikhs entered Delhi and actually kind of subdued the Mughal ruler Shah Alam at that particular point. And it was fundamental because after all the number of years that Sikhs have been persecuted, it was almost saying we've thrown a dart right at the heart of the Mughal Empire. 
So that was one of his great achievements. We had other Sikh warriors from that period. We talk about Bagheel Singh, who was actually the commander in chief of that areas around Delhi as well. He went all the way and kind of also had skirmishes with the British pre Ranjit Singh and you know Anglo Sikh war period we're talking about here. So he was very, very fundamental. The whole missile system itself had each warrior was absolutely incredible in terms of what they were trying to do. They were also they came, it was almost like 11 individuals, but they came together as a collective when they needed to in, in this early uh, early period. Uh, we also had women warriors as well. Um, and we, we talk about the area of Patiala. And the Patiala um, had um, individuals like Sabkor, who was, um, whilst not in charge of the Patiala kind of the regime, but she was in charge enough to actually have an own army. And she came into contact, believe it or not, with a Irish mercenary as well. And um, so, you know, so I talk a little bit about that in my book as well. So we also get other characters and other individuals in the 18th century, which are, you know, just absolutely fantastic when you read about their history and what they were trying to achieve. Would you say it's a theme of Sikh history, these strong female figures? Because, you know, obviously, you know, first Anglo-Sikh war, you've, uh, you know, you've, I've forgotten her name. Was it the Maharani? Maharani Jindankul. Yes, you know, so you have a strong character there, you know, the, the female warriors you're discussing. Maybe I'm going off on a tangent, but is this, is this a strong part of Sikh history, these strong female characters? I think what's important to actually understand is that if they were out there in the battlefield, they'd be in charge of administrative duties as well. So I think that's really, really important to understand. Whilst there wasn't like legions of Sikh uh, women, if that, if we could say that, there was individuals who would be in charge of administrative duties that look after the household. When we say household, we don't mean look after the children. We are talking about, you know, lands of Sikh warriors whilst they went on their campaigns as well. So we do find that quite, we have enough evidence of that in the 18th century. And that's really, really important. Whilst they may not have all been in the battlefield, they still held the kind of territories. And that was really, really important because if I can give Sight another example, we have Rani Sadakor. She is from the Kanaya dynasty. So she was the individual who was actually looking after a young child by the name of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So, you know, sorry, Ranjit Singh before he became the Maharaja. And she aided his ascendancy when he was to become Maharaja, you know, and, you know, we talk about the Sikh empire who guided the Sikh empire, but the, at this early infancy, it was a very strong female. And it was his mother-in-law who's called Sadako because her, her daughter got married to Ranjit Singh. So she tried to kind of um, almost mold Ranjit Singh to become this powerful kind of empire builder as well. So, you know, we do find that there's this, um, this important aspect, which I feel that uh, Sikh history has lost or kind of not explained to, full ex to the full extent. And maybe it's an area that, you know, recovers um, further kind of coverage. And that's what I've been trying to do in this next, next book I'm writing as well. Brilliant. And that's probably a great segue to talk about, you know, the great Ranjit Singh. I've mm. discussed him on the podcast before, so we don't need to go yeah. into great detail, but in case someone's new to this story and who Ranjit Singh was, could you just give us a, a brief explanation of who he was and what he achieved? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So his missile or confederacy was called the Sucker Chakia missile, basically. So he'd grown up in the late 80s, late 1700s. His, his father, Maha Singh, was really powerful chief. And before him, Charat Singh, who was an ally of the Jassa Singh Alawali, who had mentioned previously as well. So he came from this great dynasty. So when he gets to about 1799, he starts coveting these territories. He starts taking over Lahore, starts taking over Amritsar. And by that time, some of these aging missile leaders are, you know, they're getting old, they're no longer in warfare. So this is a great opportunity for one individual to become the supreme leader almost of the Sikhs, if that makes sense. So he covets the territories of these aging missile leaders. He creates um, a new kind of army, essentially. So what he's trying to do, he's trying to become this de facto ruler of the Sikhs. And so the Sikh empire is kind of defined by Maharaja Ranjit Singh and what he does. He So he creates stability. I think that's the key thing. He creates stability in the Punjab. He creates, you know, he got his own coinage. He's actually got um, a great military leadership, which he creates. He employs the European mercenaries as well from various countries, from European. So the great thing about the military uh, kind of um, leadership is he's able to use the Sikh warrior, Sikh methods of old, but also be able to modify the army with kind of European um, innovations, and they they work side by side. And you may say, well, okay, let's just shed the old, but he knew he couldn't do that because some of the old, um, the Sikh leaders under some of the, you know, the real tough brethren were never prepared to get rid of their old methods. But what he could do was have specific units uh, working alongside each other when they had his campaigns, essentially. And am I right in saying that under his leadership, the military, as you've mentioned, modernised, but to the point where it was the equal of many European armies in terms of its use of artillery, of infantry? You know, these, these were, this was an army that could hold its own with, with anyone across the globe. It's really, really important point. This is because whilst we have individual, whilst we have like armies like the Marathas, for instance, um, and other armies as well, um, which you know that the East India Company were more kind of in tune with, they actually underestimated the Sikhs. They didn't realize that the Sikhs were such a fundamental power, uh, a power such that you know they could actually hold their own, like you said, because the artillery, for instance. It was a, it was really interesting because the actual the governor general the early governor generals gave gave um, the cannons to the Sikhs and what did the Sikhs do? They actually improved excuse me improved on those patterns. So the foundries in the Punjab at Lahore were so great that uh, they improved on the British patterns. Even the guns that were given to uh, uh, guns as in actually you know uh, rifles for instance they would actually improve on those as well. So it came to a point where. Uh, when you get to the Anglo-Sikh Wars, you've got an army which is, if not equal, maybe even better in some instances when it came to, like, you know, uh, when you're comparing them on the battlefield. There's a result when we'll, we'll talk about the Anglo-Sikh Wars in a minute, but the result may have been different. But on paper, if we look at in terms of structure, that they were very, very formidable. And this is something which Maharaja Ranjit Singh had actually created. So Ranjit Singh passes away and there's 
let's say, a bit of difficulty in finding a suitable successor for him. And this, this lack of security, this lack of a strong leader, essentially, and do interrupt if I'm wrong, leads to the first Anglo-Sikh war. Maybe you could just quickly, and we have covered the first Anglo-Sikh war on the podcast before, but maybe you could just give us your perspective on the war and what happened. Well, quite rightly, um, after Ranjit Singh passes away, we get to this point where there's um, the Sikh court or Darbar is imploding. So the successes, you know, are there, but there's other factions killing each other. So what you're getting is by the time you get to about 1845, you've got an unruly Sikh army. And um, at the same time, you've got the East India Company who can actually see what's going on as well. So for the East India Company, it was always this idea that there's a buffer between themselves, Afghanistan and Russia as well. It's, for some reason, the East India Company always had it that the Russians are going to come one day across Afghanistan, across Pakistan, into India and into British territory, which is really fascinating for me because you don't actually see the Sikhs ever say the Russians are coming, <laughs> if that makes sense. So you've got um, this uh, Sikh army, which um, through their leaders are feeling that there's going to be the encroachment of the British. You've got to realise that the British were encroaching around the Punjab. And, um, you know, there's various numerous instances of where, you know, you could see tensions, um, you know, getting stronger and stronger between the two, two groups. So, so when actually the Sikhs do cross over this so-called border of the Sutlej, interestingly, the Sikhs did it in a way where they crossed into their own territory. So below the Sutlej River was their own territory. But for Governor, you know, the Governor General Harding, it was considered an act of war. It was done in the ways that it was almost testing the British. But once we get to the Anglo-Sikh Wars, it's, I consider it unnecessary wars, basically. I don't really see why there was a need for these particular wars because the British had what they had at that particular time. The Sikhs had what they had. But circumstances dictated where these two wars would take place. Now, the first Anglo-Sikh wars, there's always been felt that the two, uh, the two people who were in charge, Lal Singh and Ted Singh, were traitors and were actually passing state secrets to the British. However, in saying that, the army on the ground held their own within the battle. The Battle of Ferozshah, as many would know, on the second day, it was almost to a point where the British were losing almost. They were like send, sending their state papers to be burned. You know, various items were sent because they didn't think they'd make it to the next day. So the idea that uh, the first Sikh war was a complete loss is true, but the Sikhs have always felt that it was an underhanded way in which they'd kind of lost. But don't get me wrong, once the, the, the actual um, you know, the battles have started, you know, you know, Lord Goff, you know, had done, had done, had used his tactics right as well. So he was able to actually, you know, penetrate the Sikh um, artillery where, where it was very weak. But at the same time, the Sikhs never took their advantage in the first Sikh war as well. And this, we think, was due to their, you know, like the commanders in chief holding back. So quite rightly, the first Sikh war was won by the British. And then there's this lull almost where, you know, it, the Punjab is not annexed, but it's actually kind of a quasi-government by the British. But then by that time, you have a Governor General Lord Dalhousie come in power. 
And what we find with the second angle seat was almost even more interesting than the first in the sense that it's not kind of from the Lahore Darbar itself. It's almost from a place called Multan. Now, Multan was one of those areas which is like a subsidiary of the Sikh Empire, but it was over nothing, essentially. It was um, Devan Mulraj. Um, he's handing the keys over. Two British soldiers are killed. And then this starts off this siege in Multan. And interestingly... Up until, say, if the siege started in, you know, 1848, really early period, it's not till later on the year when certain Sikhs join upon Mulraj to have this kind of, you know, campaign to oust the British. So it was never this idea that there was going to be a you know, second anglo Sikh war. There was frustrations and there was concern. But it was never to a point that, yes, as soon as the British take over, the Sikhs now want to fight this another war. So we think it was a localised war, which should have been dealt with in a localised way, but it turned into something which allowed the British to annex the Punjab. Maybe that was political because, you know, Governor Dalhousie wanted to annex the Punjab and use it, certain excuses to do it. But at the same time, you never had the full backing of, the say, the Sikh Darbar, um, you know, the court, and it wasn't like the whole Punjab in the second angle of the Sikh war went against the British. It was never that. So I've always felt that, you know, the second angle of the Sikh war was not the war which should have been the way it was. It could have been curtailed. There could have been other ways in which it could have been dealt with. But I think it was that British policy where it allowed it to kind of conflate to something bigger than it was. But, you know, um, Sheer Singh of the Sikhs, um, Sheer Singh Adariwala, his name was, um, he tried his best to actually ask the British. I don't think he got the support he needed from around him to actually have achieved that. But, um, you know, it, that's, it led to the annexation of the Punjab in 1849. So 1849 then, we've had these two Anglo-Sikh wars by this point. Then we have the annexation. At this point, at the beginning of the annexation, what is that relationship like between, you know, the Sikhs of the Punjab and the British? Is there already developing, uh, you know, a framework for a future relationship? Or is, it very, is there a lot of animosity at this point? See, that's a really, really great question as well. And the reason it's a great question is that just to, in terms of geographical detail, in 1809, Maharaja Ranjit Singh had signed uh, with, um, you know, Metcalf uh, of the British, um, this treaty which gave the border of the Sutledge River, uh, the British territory, um, below the river Sutledge. So essentially what that means is the British have control over it, but the Sikhs still held ter territory in those areas. So what we find in 1846 onwards is certain regions, we talk about Patiala, Nabar, Jeend, those uh, territories were never participants of the Anglo-Sikh wars. So what that meant is the British could turn to certain Sikhs for employment, and as you can see where this is leading to now. So, so when we get to 1849, they've already got certain Sikhs from these territories which are in unison with the British in terms of a future kind of uh, army almost. So you start getting this trickle of individuals which are helping the East India Company from 1846 onwards. Maybe a smaller number, but when you get to 1849, it gives that opportunity to the British to say, well, what do we do now with this 
thousands and thousands of soldiers who, you know, we either take their arms or do we do something which allows them this opportunity to become part of this so-called larger British force, essentially. So that's quite interesting. So the, well, after the Second Anglo-Sikh War, the British didn't disarm the, the Sikh soldiers then. Did they essentially re-employ them? There was disarmament because what happened was at the end um, of, you know, in the last battle of Gujarat, um, what happens is, is um, you know, Gilbert, um, you know, of the, you know, of the Gilbert fame of families, he actually ensures that there is this disarming of Sikhs. Um, but what we do find is that uh, once this government is put in place, the Sikhs in terms of, let's just, let's separate this out. So the government of the Sikhs are still kept within that military framework, but the individuals are like, you know, curtailed now almost to say, well, you know, you can no longer have this military bands of individuals roaming around Punjab unless it's kind of sanctified with the British approval. We get the Arms Act, which comes later on in the 1800 periods, but effectively in 1849, you can't have bands of roaming Sikh warriors. So it was kind of almost established at that particular point that, you know, there had to be a way in which, um, you know, like I said, the Sikhs had to be employed because Sikh soldiery was a big profession. So what do we do with these Sikhs? Because farming was a profession, but if there was a way that the Sikhs were going to get paid, there was going to be pensions, then that just almost led the, you know, the ground for what the British, British want to do next, essentially. And what did they do next then? How how did this how did this relationship kind of grow yeah. up? I mean, you know, I, I I don't know if it's there's a little bit of historical myth interwoven, but there is this, uh, you know, people do see a great friendship, mm. you know, between uh, the Sikhs and the British, particularly militarily. How mm. did that sort of grow off the back of the uh, Second Anglo Sikh War? And is it even true? Was there this friendship, or or has that been blown out of all proportion? Yeah, both questions are really, really relevant. So, yes, so the early period involved employing certain Sikhs in certain units. So you may have had 20, you might have had 50. You start developing, you know, these kind of uh, units as well. You start getting the Punjab Frontier Force. You start getting, you know, Province Horse, for instance. You start getting um, various little, like, units which are starting growing. And I think what the key thing for the British was to try it out. And every time they did try it out, say for early campaigns against the Afghans, the Sikhs were really, you know, important to these, Af uh, to, to these campaigns. So if we're talking about from 1849 to 1857, when we talk about the so-called mutiny, the Sikhs have already proved themselves. So it's interesting because people say, oh, well, by the time you get to the World War One, you get to World War Two, you know, the Sikhs have proven themselves. No, you get this early period between 1849 and 1857, where the Sikhs are, you know, as part of this British, uh, you know, part of the East India Company forces fighting alongside the British against campaigns, say, in, you know, towards Afghanistan as well. So I think that's what was the really, really the great indicator, which showed that, you know, the Sikhs are going to get a profession, the Sikhs are going to get pension, whether it was for, you know, king and country and that kind of thing, and queen and country, for instance, that is kind of debatable, like you said, because, 
it was a profession which earned money, for instance. So when you get to the mutiny, for instance, the Sikhs prove themselves again, and new units are kind of raised as well. So that actually almost kind of, the mutiny almost rubber stamps everything which is going on between that particular period. Because again, you had Patiala, you know, Nabba, Jind, like I said, those kind of areas. But this time, the Sikhs are actually kind of reinforcing, the other areas of the Punjab are reinforcing this kind of almost established kind of Sikh soldiery. And that's when you start getting uh, from 1857 onwards, this continued uh, number of soldiers now forming units as part of the British Indian Army now. Because as you know, in 1857, the East India Company was dissolved. So there's a new way of looking at how we employ not just Sikhs, but other individuals as well. And then later on in the 1800s, you start getting this idea of, you know, the martial races as well. I don't really like that term in the sense because the Sikhs are martial anyway, but yet the British would say, well, you're a martial race, so we need to employ you. But the Sikhs are martial anyway. So, you know, it's a, one of the dichotomies that you get when it comes to wording between, you know, two groups, essentially. Maybe you could briefly explain, because a lot of people probably won't know what, what that's in reference to. What, what was this martial races theory and how was it used by the, by the British? And, and in fact, how, how does it still have massive influence on Indian army recruitment today? Well, essentially, it was almost like saying we want a classification of, of, of groups in, the, in India, which we think militarily they would stand in good stock for you know, the British Indian Army. So they would then kind of classify them in terms of like the martial race. So the Sikhs was one of them. The Jats, for instance, was one of them. You know, you could look at Gurkhas as well. So they could be considered one of them. There's various other denominations as well. And essentially what it meant was that if we are going to recruit, we're going to recruit from these types of individual or these groups, because we feel that if we tap into them, it almost becomes like we tap into five Sikhs, they get their pensions, they get their rewards, and then they will go back to their villages and they'll get another five or they'll get another 10 almost. It was almost becoming like, you know, this kind of recruitment campaigns, but specifically from these individuals. Now, some people almost consider it as being a very racist in the sense that, you know, we're looking at almost biological fact, excuse me, you look at biological factors, looking at grouping individuals but the British always did that the British always grouped individuals grouped territories and therefore it worked to their advantage essentially to kind of group these individuals so it was almost like this never-ending stock of warrior from these races which you know kind of uh, propped up the, you know the British Indian Army essentially and this would actually you know lead into all these other campaigns we talk about World War One to World War World War Two as well but Gives this early late hundred period, but it's interesting because it's also propped up with handbooks as well. So particularly for the Sikhs, it's almost like regimental officers would be given handbooks to say, "Look, we have the Sikhs. You need to know everything about them to get the best of them as well on the battlefield." And I know the focus of your research isn't necessarily you know, the post-Anglo-Sikh Wars period. But could you just give us a, a brief overview of some of the major campaigns that these uh, predominantly Sikh regiments fought in alongside the British uh, throughout the rest of that era? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, you've got the popular campaigns, which are, you know, against the Afghans, for instance. So, you know, it's always Af Afghans, 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 you know, and it's interesting to this very day, how Afghanistan plays into the psyche of British Afghanistan relations. You know, it's very current, as we, as we all know. So the Sikhs had actually, up until 1839, well, up until 1837, we meant, uh, uh, a Sikh warrior that I didn't mention was someone called Hari Singh Nalwa. So what he'd done was he'd actually created a number of forts all al along Peshawar. And whilst the Sikhs never actually conquered Afghanistan, they'd conquered the Afghan people. So the Sikhs have always felt that, you know, we've conquered the Afghan people from that point because the summer houses around Peshawar were always taken. So it was interesting that the Sikhs had felt that we were conquerors of Afghanistan, even though they hadn't got to Kabul. They did with the British Indian Army. Uh, Interestingly, a lot earlier. So, you know, when um, the, the British campaign of going into Afghanistan in the early 1840s, which was, you know, which was a bit of a kind of a respite because they had to come back because the Afghans were so, you know, so tough, as everyone knows. But when we get to the, you know, the campaigns later on, I think it kind of bolsters the British um, that they were able to rely on the Sikhs when it came to, you know, the Khyber Pass and it came to all these campaigns. So when you get to something like the Battle of Saragori, for instance, you know, you know, you have 21 Sikh soldiers who allegedly are fighting 10,000, you know, Afghans, you know, of, of various tribes uh, related to those areas. So therefore, these kind of battles put the Sikhs on a pedestal almost because they're not just kind of saying that, you know, we fought for the British Indian Army, but it also is saying that these Sikhs were actually able to military hold their own as well, even though they're all uh, kind of massacred at that particular point as well. So we've got these Afghan campaigns, but also what we have is um, when the British went to um, Africa, for instance, so the Sikhs are also sent to Africa as well. So there's a number of campaigns there as well, which are very, very interesting. We're not talking by in terms of 10,000 Sikh soldiers, we're talking about, you know, a number of um, individuals, say, from the 15th of the Diana Sikhs, um, you know, and various other kind of um, um, units as well. But what we do start seeing is the Sikhs are now being rewarded as well. Whilst the Victoria Cross was not available for Indian soldiers at that time, you get the Indian order of merit, for instance. So this kind of leads on to what I was saying in terms of what the rewards are for Indian army soldiers. So, you know, the Sikhs actually went to Malta, the, primarily because the, the British were going to be in conflict in Cyprus, for instance. It never happened, but the Sikhs actually got to Malta, for instance. So you start seeing all these areas where it's in, um, you know, Central Africa, where it's, you know, getting to Malta, whether it's, um, you know, in other areas of this Indian subcontinent as well. So, you know, in Burma, for instance, and these are all pre-war, uh, pre-World War campaigns. And it's interesting because, um, you know, when you talk about the Sikhs and the British, I think these early campaigns are really, really important because that's when you start seeing how you get the Sikhs employed in a way. Because remember, it's different because when during the time of, uh, you know, Maharaja Rajit Singh and also during the time of uh, the Anglo-Sikh wars, it's a Sikh method of warfare. Now you're, uh, you're under a British system, you know, you remember your clothing is different, you're using different pattern of guns, for instance, so it would have been different for the Sikhs, but they kind of did actually 
hold their own. So in all the campaigns that you see, you know, post-1849, you see that the Sikhs were deployed in a way, but they were able to hold their own in all of these campaigns. And that's why, you know, you have a legion of Indian, um, you know, the, the, the merit merits awards being given because they were able to prove themselves on the battlefield during this British Indian Army kind of, you know, confederacy, so to speak. And I know you can't speak on behalf of hundreds of thousands of veterans over many, many decades, but what is your perspective? Do you believe there was a genuine fondness between the British and Sikh people, or is that a sort of romantic, looking back, you know, historically, do we romanticise that relationship? Or do you think there was genuine warmth uh, between, between particularly, say, the British officers who served with their Sikh soldiers, and was that reciprocated? I think what you see is there's two views, and those two views are still very current now. If you look at the soldiery in terms of, um, you know, when they're fighting with their British comrades, for instance, I would use that word comrade because it was brothers in arms. It definitely was that. What you find, though, is if you're looking at the words or labels colonialism, and if you're looking at, say, post uh, almost uh, the First World War, because Sikhs were kind of massacred at, say, a place called Jallianwalabagh in the early 19th, you know, just literally not too long after the first Sikh, sorry, after the First World War, you do get soldiers who start questioning themselves and saying, well, why are we fighting for a foreign race when our people here in Amritsar are getting massacred? So I think you've got to look at different strands is the way I would say it. So whilst on the battlefield, yes, they were brother in arms, always would be at that particular point. And if you look at the descendants of uh, individuals who fought, say, let, let, let's talk about the world, world, world wars, you know, the children of these individuals are very, very proud. They would say, look, my forefathers fought for the British and we have the medals and we, you know, to this very day, and we're happy that they did that. You have this post-colonialism uh, kind of thought, thought, which is like, you know, you know, the Indian army or the Sikhs fighting for um, the, effectively a foreign um, for a foreign government, essentially, and even an oppressor in some cases as well. So the way I personally view it is that you've got to look at it at the time. What were the Sikhs thinking at that particular time? And if they felt that they were doing a good job for themselves, the British and for their families, then that's what it was at that particular time. So, and quite, the, I think the answer comes at 1846 and 1849, because if one minute you're fighting against the British, fighting against the British, and then within months you're employed with the British, that kind of shows that you know allegiances uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't like that in terms of like the grudge was held in 1849 against the Sikh Empire, because even during the Sikh, uh, the Sikh Empire and Anglo-Sikh Wars, it wasn't everyone fighting the British. And this is what I, I think is really, really fundamental. It's almost like saying like, you know, because the Sikh Empire was also composed of the Hindus and the Muslims as well. So, you know, the Commonwealth was there. But when you get to the Sikhs as an individual standings, once you start getting certain villages almost, you know, being completely part of um, the British Indian Army, then I would have felt that, you know, they were happy with that. What, but the, I think the circumstances in the world wars were different because, you know, you're far away from home, you're far away from your families. 
And there is a bit more of a controlling mechanism as we read from letters of the Sikhs that were sent back to, you know, to, to the Punjab, for instance. You know, letters were censored, for instance. And, you know, maybe some of their equipment weren't to, to the same specific standard as, say, the British soldiers, for instance. But that didn't actually mean that they weren't giving their all when it came to the campaigns in World War One and World War Two as well. Brilliant. And we're nearly ready to wrap up. But I just wanted to to ask, and I don't know if this is if this is something you you're up to date on or not, but how is the and we'll focus on on the Sikh soldiers, because obviously that's your speciality. How is the Sikh soldiers who fought for Britain viewed by modern day historians, particularly in India? Do they vilify them or are they generally still respected? Um, so we're talking specifically about World War One or World War Two. Well, I'm speaking. I'm speaking more generally. You know, including during the earlier colonial era. You know, like for example, you know, we could talk about you know uh, the First War of Independence, the Indian Mutiny, yeah. um, and and then later going up through the First and Second World Wars. I mean, what what, what do modern day historians how how do they sort of treat the Sikh soldiers in terms of the way they talk about them? I think, again, there's certain views and certain narratives as well. Interestingly, we talk about the Indian mutiny, for instance, and the Sikhs get vilified sometimes by other Indians by saying, no, it was only the Sikhs who actually, you know, fought with the British against, you know, you know, the, the, the rebellion movements. But that's not true. There was like Hindu princes, there were other Islamic individuals as well who actually fought with the British in 1857. And interestingly, Sikhs fought with the other individuals who were leading the rebellion as well. So, you know, this idea that um, the Sikhs were, you know, just pro-British and anti-Indian isn't isn't quite right. So we have these different kind of shades, so to speak. Um, but I think uh, when it comes to military history specifically, because it was, you know, it was so skewed that the Sikhs were kind of fighting at the percentage uh, for the British Indian Army. They became, you know, after 1945 as well, after partition, the Sikhs still carried on becoming, you know, part of the, you know, the Indian Army continuously. I think 1984 was different where the Sikhs had a um, there's a backlash against the Sikhs with the with the Indian government after you know the Golden Temple, the Harimandir Sahib was actually attacked by the Indian force. So you had a little bit of tension there, but I think the soldier profession, um, even to this very day, is still very strong in terms of Sikhs being you know being um, initiated in the armed forces there, and and they see it with pride even to this very day. So you know, I think there has to be those narratives. I think there has to be, you know, certain historians will always say that you know why were you kind of being, being uh, as part of uh, colonial soldiers? But interestingly, what we are finding now is a revival of Sikhs who fought uh, for the British and then the graves are found. You know, we're finding a lot more about their histories and, pe and people here in the UK have these kind of tendencies to know more and say, well, okay, well, I know my grandfather fought, you know, or great-grandfather fought uh, for the British, but where are these records? So we're moving now towards almost like a resurgence of individuals saying we want to know a lot more. And with like a certain databases which are becoming available as well, this is now becoming a lot more apparent for individuals who want to actually learn about their history. And it's almost like a, a great period as well, because look, why would we have in the last five or 10 years where there is Sikh statues created 
to actually kind of say, well, you know, we were very proud of that particular moment where the seats fall hand in heart, in hand, hand in hand with the British. So that's why you're going to see a lot more uh, Sikh statues coming up in the following, you know, years as well to come. Brilliant. Before we wrap up, can you tell us a bit about, about your work with the museum that you're running, the virtual museum, and also with your, with your books? Just tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and how people can find out more. Yeah, so um, in terms of the books, um, in 2020, I released the book, The British and the Sikhs. And it is exactly that. Going back from the 1700 period, what was the first connections that the British had? You know, great connections as well. And I'm not just talking from a military history as well. I'm talking about, you know, administrators, people actually having first contact with the Sikhs. And some really great information in the British and the Sikhs book, which is published by Hellion and Company. And in 2022, uh, I'll have the rise of the Sikh soldier, which is almost like a second part to it, but it goes into depth in terms of Sikh soldiery as well. So as a historian myself, I always came down into actually researching Sikh history. But, you know, around about 2015, I set up uh, with several other individuals, the Sikh Museum Initiative. And what we felt was that um, it, was, it would be great to actually merge digital technology with Sikh history. So we create the Sikh Museum Initiative and we've got the Anglo-Sikh Virtual Museum, which we created from 2018 onwards. What that allows us to do is to actually digitize and recreate objects in 3D. So you visit the website, www.anglosikhmuseum.com and you can see objects there. You know, it could be like a sword, for instance, it could be a flag, it could be a coin, but then you can actually maneuver these objects in 3D, you know, with use of your mouse, you've got tablets, so you can actually spin these objects around. And what it does do, it kind of imparts Sikh history, but Anglo-Sikh history as well. So it kind of gives all groups something to learn about. So um, we've got digital touchscreens, we've got virtual reality headsets as well. So we do, um, we do um, road shows as well from time to time during the pandemic. It's been less, but, uh, you know, we're back out into 2022 where we'll be out on the road again, where we'll be able to impart this important kind of heritage which crosses, you know, different communities and gives the impetus for people to learn more about military history as well. So, um, like I said, the best uh, place to go is www.angloseatmuseum.com and where you can actually interact with these objects. And like I said, um, you know, we've got the book, um, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier coming out in 22 as well, which will just be, you know, a little kind of addition to the work that I've already been doing previously. So there you have it guys, lots of stuff to check out there if you want to learn more about Gorinda's fascinating work. I always love to see people from God's own city, that's Leicester in case you don't know, doing well in life. So please do support what he's doing. You can also support this podcast by registering for my monthly newsletter over at redcoathistory.com. And for those of you that are super generous, you can even donate to the show via co-fi.com slash redcoathistory, coffee.com slash redcoathistory. In the meantime, stay low and move fast. Your life might depend on it.